So tonight's fifth and final small group session is entitled Grace, Repentance, and Confession of Sin. So we're going to go ahead and get started with that if you just look up the screen. session eight of our study on grace, the DNA of God. I have absolutely loved this time with you, and I pray this last session will be a really enjoyable time of study and looking into the Word of God together. Uh, We're talking about the relationship between grace and confession of sin and repentance. And this is just my belief. I don't believe that grace makes repentance unnecessary. I think grace makes repentance possible. It is a glorious thing. It is a turning away from something that is displeasing to God and hurtful to us, and it is a turning toward a new opportunity from God. It is turning toward a new beginning. Um, It is turning toward the, the good things that God has for our future. And to me, repentance is a beautiful thing. I want to share with you a definition written by my friend Rick Renner in his outstanding uh, work, A Light in Darkness, uh, Seven Messages to the Seven Churches. Rick Renner says the following. He says, the word repent comes from the Greek word metanoio, which is a compound of meta and nous. The word meta means to turn, and the word nous means one's mind, intellect, will, frame of thinking, opinion, or general view of life. When the words meta and nous are combined together, the new word depicts a decision to completely change the way one thinks, lives, or behaves. This doesn't describe a temporary emotional sorrow for past actions. Rather, it is a solid intellectual decision to turn about face, to take a new direction, to completely alter one's life by discarding an old destructive pattern and embracing a brand new one. True repentance involves a conscious decision both to turn away from sin, selfishness, and rebellion and turn toward God with all of one's heart and mind. It is a complete 180 degree turn in one's thinking and behaving. I think that's a glorious description. Thank God that when we were on a path to hell, 
that God gave us really what we can call the gift of repentance. Uh, that by His grace, He arrested us. He got our attention. He showed us the problem of where we were headed. And He gave us the divine ability uh, by the influence of the glorious Holy Spirit to turn around and to begin a brand new life in Him with His uh, forgiveness, acceptance, empowerment. Uh, to me, I just think repentance is awesome and wonderful. And even on uh, our journey as a Christian, if we get off the path a little bit, if we get turned a little bit crooked or sideways, uh, repentance means making that adjustment uh, to where we turn from the wrong and turn toward that which is right. Uh, quoting from my book here, uh, repentance occurs when our hearts and minds are awakened to God's glorious potential for our lives in the light of God's goodness and good intentions toward us. We recognize the deficiency of our selfish perspective and the destructiveness of our sinful behavior. Thus, we turn from them in order to embrace a new, better, and higher life offered by a God of grace. Repentance is an amazing word. And again, I don't think repentance is made unnecessary by grace. I think grace makes repentance possible. The very first sermon uh, that Jesus preached, uh, according to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, his very first words were, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark 1.15 records Jesus' first message as, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel message is not simply one of believe, but it is repent and believe. Turn toward God with all of your heart. Uh, Jesus later said in Luke 5.32, He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them to pray, uh, Jesus taught what is considered the model prayer. And included within that prayer is the following statement, And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Luke 11.4 when Jesus talked to the churches in the book of Revelation, and let me just say this, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are two extremely important chapters because in those chapters, they show us how Jesus relates to born-again believers, how Jesus relates even to church congregations you know, unfortunately, and I think this is a whole other topic, but I'm, I am alarmed and disturbed that many people tend to discount uh, much, if not all, of what Jesus said in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, probably nobody discounts all of it. But, but they tend to say, well, Jesus said that before his resurrection, so that doesn't really count. You know, when Jesus ascended into heaven, one of the things he told the disciples in Matthew 28, 
was he said, you know, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Jesus did not seem to believe that his words were going to be made obsolete by his resurrection. Um, I just think we need to be very, very cautious about anyone who teaches that, well, we don't need to pay attention to what Jesus said before his resurrection or gives any kind of devaluing statement to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, yes, we need to rightly divide the Word of God. And there were occasions where Jesus, in his statements, was specifically clarifying a certain minute detail of the Mosaic Law. And when he was interpreting the Mosaic Law, I understand that that stands as that type of statement. We are not under the Mosaic Law today. But to discount large portions or to discount uh, or to devalue significant statements made by the Lord Jesus Christ to me is a very, very dangerous place to go. In the book of Revelation, any questions that people have about that would be off the table because obviously when Jesus talked to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, uh, this was way after his resurrection. This is definitely New Testament. This is the dispensation of grace. And when Jesus talked to the churches of the book of Revelation, he told five of the seven churches to repent. He told the church at Ephesus, uh, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand. Um, to the church at Pergamum, Ch- Pergamos, he said, Repent, or else I will come quickly and will fight against them. Uh, to the church in, in Thyatira, the believers there. He spoke of a, a woman claiming to be a prophetess, and he said, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. She did not repent, and he went on to pronounce some very severe judgment. Um, friends, this is New Testament. Uh, this is the age of grace. Grace does not mean that there is no longer any kind of judgment for unrepentant sin. Grace does not mean that, you know, the laws of sowing and reaping are suspended. Um, the Bible says God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. If you sow to your flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. Uh, grace does not do away with the message of repentance. Grace is the basis for repenting because grace says this, even when we have missed it, God is still merciful and he is still calling us back to himself. Grace doesn't make obedience unnecessary. Grace makes obedience possible. Grace doesn't make consecration unnecessary. Grace makes consecration possible. And grace does not make repentance unnecessary. Grace makes repentance possible. Thank God that we have a good God. And even when we've missed it, 
We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friend, that is grace and that is good news. So Jesus told five of the seven churches to repent. And my contention is this, that repentance is only possible if there is an acknowledgement or a confession of the problem. There's an old saying, you can't solve a problem you don't have. And until you acknowledge, which that's what the word confess means, acknowledge or admit, to agree with, to say the same thing, until you acknowledge that you're headed the wrong direction, how would you ever turn and go the right direction? So to me, confession and repentance are inextricably, is that a word, inextricably connected. If it's not a word, it is now for this lesson. Uh, You can't separate confession and repentance. So if confession no longer applies to the New Testament believer, then repentance uh, could not apply to the New Testament believer because you can't repent until you acknowledge that there's a problem. So um, in Acts chapter 19, we see another place where believers repented. In Acts 19, verses 18 and 19, it says, Many who became believers. So who, do, who are we talking about? People who became believers confessed their sinful practices. This was dealing with witchcraft and idolatry. And a number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. So what we have in Ephesus is as people became believers, they would turn from their old lifestyle and they would basically destroy, you know, the uh, connections to that. And uh, they began a new life in Christ. Uh, I want to look at a case study in repentance. You know, the Corinthian church was a, a interesting church. There was a lot of carnality in that church. Uh, there was a lot of sin in that church. You know, people were suing each other. Uh, there was strife. There was division. Uh, people were getting drunk at the communion services. A man had uh, basically stolen his stepmother from his father, and he was living with her in known, you know, adultery and, you know, kind of a really weird situation there, a a man cohabiting with his stepmother in sexual sin. And um, the Corinthians just had, they were a real rough group, very rough around the edges. And there was a situation that happened where... Paul had written them a letter. Uh, He refers to this letter in 2 Corinthians, and he refers to it as being a severe letter, a severe letter. Uh, We don't have a record of that letter. In, In 1 Corinthians, what we call 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to a previous letter to that. 
So Paul wrote probably at least four letters to the Corinthians. We have two of them. Uh, he referred to a previous letter in 1 Corinthians. Then he wrote 1 Corinthians. Then there was this severe, harsh letter that he wrote. And then there is 2 Corinthians. He referred to this letter in which he must have just ripped them up one side and down the other. And he even said in 2 Corinthians, he said, I would have visited you, but he said, I was just too upset. I did not want to have a painful visit. And so he said, I wrote you that severe letter instead. And Paul was addressing issues of sin. And we have to ask ourselves the question, you know, let's take some of this other, what I consider to be extreme and erroneous teaching. Paul did not write them and say, hey, I know all this stuff is going on in your church, but hey, you're already forgiven. You know, uh, he didn't take that kind of approach at all. Uh, Paul dealt with present, active, perpetual sin in a very strong and direct way. And we get a little bit of a glimpse of what New Testament repentance is all about. And I believe it does include the confession of sin, the acknowledgement of sin. Doesn't mean you have to dwell on it. Doesn't mean you have to wallow in it. Doesn't mean you have to linger in condemnation over it. But I, I really find error with the idea of minimizing confession of sin uh, based on what one very popular teacher says. Well, it's only mentioned in one epistle. Well, what we need to understand is that the word confession is, is one thing, but the concept of confession is another. For example, if we're going to do our theology entirely based on the presence of a word, did you know that the word Trinity never appears in the New Testament, never appears in the Bible? Yet we believe in the Trinity not because the word or the frequency of the word, but because the concept of the Trinity is seen so pervasively through Scripture. I don't believe in the New Testament confession of sin based on the fact that that word is used one time in 1 John 1, 9. I believe in it because I see the pervasiveness of the principle throughout Scripture, including places where the word itself is not used, but the practice was obviously in, in place. And 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is a case study in New Testament repentance. And it involves the confession or the acknowledgement of sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 6. Paul has sent the severe letter to the Corinthians. And he's about to get word. He's writing about uh, the report that Titus brought back of their response uh, to the severe letter. 2 Corinthians 7, 6. But God, who encourages those who are discouraged, encouraged us by the arrival of Titus. His presence was a joy, but so was the news he brought of the encouragement he received from you. When he told us 
how much you long to see me and how sorry you are for what happened and how loyal you are to me. I was filled with joy. He said, I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful for you for a little while. Now I am glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow, listen to this, it was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you are not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Such earnestness, such concern to clear yourselves, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, and such a readiness to punish wrong, you showed that you have done everything necessary to make things right. Now listen, the word confession is not there, but I don't see how any person could read that and say that the Corinthians did not acknowledge the truth of what Paul was saying where he pointed out the fault, where he pointed out the problem, where he talked to them about sin that they needed to repent for. Uh, repentance can't happen without confession. Repentance can't happen without an acknowledgement of the fact that there's a problem that needs to be turned away from and a new direction that needs to be embraced. When I stop and think about this, you know, I think about my own marriage. I'm married to a wonderful woman. Lisa and I have been married since 1979. And we have uh, a document at home that is a marriage license. That marriage license speaks of the legal status of our relationship. It doesn't really say anything about the 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 moment-to-moment -moment or day-to-day -day quality of our relationship or our fellowship. It speaks of the legal nature of our relationship. And, you know, I, I hate to admit this, but on occasion I've done something or said something that was, you know, insensitive or careless, and I've hurt my wife's feelings, or, you know, I didn't show proper love or something like that, and every husband out there, you've done the same thing. And, uh, you know, I have found that when I make a mistake in my marriage that, uh, you know, I, I suppose I could. This sounds pretty weird, but um, I could not acknowledge that offense against my wife. Uh, 
and I could just go to our file and hold up the marriage license and show that, you know, honey, you said for better or worse, you know, that would be appealing to the legal status of the relationship. Um, I have found that in terms of fellowship, it works really well if I sincerely look at my wife in the eyes and take ownership of my fault and say, honey, you know what? I was really insensitive there. Uh, I ask you to forgive me, and uh, I'm, I'm turning away from that carelessness and insensitivity, and I'm turning, you know, my attention, my focus back to you and, uh, you know, going to endeavor to be a, a better husband here. Um, you know, when I did that insensitive thing, it didn't change the legal status of my marriage, but it affected the warmth of the tenderness and fellowship that exists within the marriage. And it's like that with God. When we mess up, when we make a mistake, I don't believe we lose our salvation. I think our salvation is very secure in Christ. But First John chapter 1 was all about fellowship. And what is restored, what is freshened, uh, what is, is, is made vibrant when we acknowledge, when we repent before God, is our fellowship is, is uh, just made full. And we get to have the fullness of the joy of our fellowship with God. When Paul addressed the Corinthian church, they were totally heading in the wrong direction. And uh, he, he brought, uh, and he was the apostle of grace. But I'll tell you what, grace, uh, it doesn't beat people over the head and condemn them. But, you know, I believe this. God loves us enough to tell us when we're on the wrong track. You know, one of the other teachings that I've been very concerned about uh, relative to some of these grace issues is I've heard people actually teach this. Uh, they teach that because of grace and because we're already forgiven, uh, and we've talked about that before, but because we're already forgiven, that the Holy Spirit will never convict a Christian of sin. And, and, and they go on to say that the Holy Spirit will only convict us that we are righteous. Well, uh, yeah, I, I know that the Holy Spirit will reassure us of our righteousness, but to me, it's, it's one of the most elementary things in the world that if we're headed the wrong direction, the Holy Spirit loves us enough not to condemn us, but to convict us. You know, we talked about how the, the churches in the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus told five out of the seven of them to repent. So Jesus knew what they were doing that was wrong, and he talked to them about it. And in the Amplified Bible, Revelation chapter 3, verse 19 says this. Those, this is Jesus talking. Those whom I dearly and tenderly love, I tell their faults and convict and convince and reprove and chasten. I discipline and instruct them. So be enthusiastic and in earnest and burning with zeal and repent, changing your mind and your attitude. Let me just say again, 
God loves us enough to tell us when we're headed in the wrong direction. No, he doesn't do it in a condemning, degrading, belittling way. And he always communicates with us based on the fact that he loves us. But because he loves us, he loves us enough to show us where we're headed wrong and to point us in the right direction. Again, I believe that grace does not make repentance unnecessary. Grace makes repentance possible. I want you to know that God loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay that way. And that's why the Bible tells us we are to grow in grace. We are to grow in grace. My prayer is that you will allow the grace of our God to continue to permeate every area of your life that that you will bask in and fully enjoy saving grace sanctifying grace strengthening grace sharing grace serving grace and that you will just be continuously and from now till the time Jesus comes just transformed from glory to glory from strength to strength and from faith to faith And I pray that you'll continue to access His grace by faith, uh, that you will continue to uh, have grace multiplied in your life through the knowledge of God, and that humility, you'll always place yourself in in a position of reliance and dependence upon Him, and that you'll boldly go before the throne of grace and as needed and often uh, receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. God bless you so much. Amen. What a great series this has been. Glory to God. Well, before we say goodnight to our uh, break into our small groups. We want to say good night to our online audience, and we want to remind you that the group discussion questions are located on our website. You can go there to heartofthebay.org and follow the small group link at the top of the home page. And so um, we want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. We hope that you'll be here on Sunday morning joining us at 10 a.m. Pastors Mark and Brenda will be here, and Pastor Mark has a life-changing word. You don't want to miss that. So thank you so much for joining us. God bless you and good night.